Reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, verses 14 to 20, and then verses 29 to 32. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. You may be seated. Let me pray to get us started. Father, when your word speaks, it's you speaking. Always may we remember that. But we know that in the ministry of Jesus Christ, you yourself were drawing near to us, and that you were advancing your kingdom. When we meet together and we hear your word spoke, you are advancing your kingdom and you are present, the God Almighty. Give us a sense of that this morning. May you draw our hearts to you through your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Occasionally, there are medical advances or discoveries that are, are, are real paradigm changers for how we practice health or health care. And penicillin is one of those. Um, I have doctors in this room, so I hope I'm saying the right thing. But penicillin is one of those. Penicillin is a type of mold that has kind of antibacterial properties. And the Scottish physician Alexander Fleming, 1928, St. Mary's Hospital in London, was the first to really discover how this could be used to fight bacterial infections. Now, even though he discovered that in 1928, didn't catch on for almost two decades. But many consider this the greatest feet of modern medicine because all of a sudden bacterial infections that were killing thousands and millions of people could be treated by taking some pills over two weeks and they would recover completely in fact um, penicillin became widespread was first mass produced in the middle of world war ii around 1942 1943 and uh, and it's been estimated that the use of penicillin saved as much as a one and a half million lives of men, women, who would have died from infection from, from the war. It's an amazing thing. 
But here's the thing is that Alexander Fleming and all the scientists who kind of labored to create this drug, to mass produce it, they did it for a purpose, and that was so that people would actually use it, right? So we can imagine, you know, 1943 comes around, and it's being mass produced, and it's being sent to the hospitals. Imagine if the hospitals and the doctors and the nurses, they, they got the shipment in, they look at it, and they're like, this is amazing, this is great, it's remarkable, what a feat of modern medicine. And then they put it on the shelf and never touch it. What defeats the purpose of penicillin? It's supposed to be used when we have infections. And sometimes I think we can do something similar with Jesus. So we pull our Bibles down from the shelf or we come to church on Sunday and, and we hear Jesus' words and ministry and teaching. We think, wow, remarkable, it's amazing. This is incredible, I'm so inspired. And then we put our Bible back on our shelf or we file out of church and we don't do anything with it. When Jesus preached, when he spoke, when he ministered on life in, in this world, he was expecting a response from those that he was speaking to. And he continues to, to, to call for a response from us today as he speaks to us through his word, as he speaks to us as a, risen cruci- as a crucified and risen Lord. So the question is, will we respond to Jesus? And more accurately, the question is, how will we respond? Because we will all respond in one way or the other. And in our text this morning is addressing some of these questions of how we respond to Jesus. Now, we're covering a big text. We're actually covering verse 14 to 54. Um, we didn't read the whole chunk of text. And because this is a larger chunk, we're, we're not going to be going as much verse by verse as section by section. We're covering a big, a big chunk today, but it also covers this basic theme of what does it mean to respond to Jesus? How do we respond to Jesus? And to give you a roadmap of where we're going, our three points will be this. First, why is a response required? Second, what kind of response is required? And then lastly, we're going to get an example of a missed opportunity to respond to Jesus. So again, if you, if you don't have a Bible open, I encourage you to open it up. We're going to be looking at verse 14 to 21. Uh, let me read that for us. Now, when he was casting out a demon that was mute, when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. First point is, why is a response required? Now, to, to kind of step back and again get the big picture of where we are in Luke, if you remember when we, when we went through Luke 9, Luke chapter 9, verse 51, is a turning point in the story of Luke. And it says that when the days drew near for him, for him talking about Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So Jesus is, is now moving towards Jerusalem, towards the cross, not in the sense that he's making, you know, you go to Google Maps, what's the fastest route, but in the sense that everything that happens now is leading towards the cross. That's the backdrop to everything that happens. And so the, the section we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks is, is looking at some of the opposition that grows as Jesus approaches Jerusalem and helps explain how eventually he'll die on a cross, how he made such enemies. And so we're beginning to see this opposition. And that's why even though we're seeing a miracle here, casting out of demons, this has happened a number of different times in Luke, the emphasis is not on the miracle. 
It's on the opposition. People are saying, people have come to a point where they're like, okay, something is different about Jesus' ministry. I can't just say he's a fraud. He does stuff that doesn't make sense. Like, we can't explain. There's supernatural power. Okay, well, we're going to say it's demonic power. That's how we're going to discredit Jesus' ministry. That's the opposition that Jesus is facing. The way Jesus responds is, that's an, that's an absurd accusation. Because Jesus' ministry is pushing back the kingdom of darkness, and if he's being fueled by the kingdom of darkness, that means the king of darkness is in civil war. Right? Like, friendly fire happens in wartime, but it's never your main strategy. That's not going to go well for you as, as a side. So Jesus says this, this accusation is absurd. But then he pushes us towards this, I'm calling a nuclear conclusion, which answers the question why a response is required, which is what he says in verse 20. He says, look, okay, if you see a supernatural power and it's not demonic, the only other option is that the finger of God, that it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons. And therefore, the kingdom of God has come upon you. He says, look, if these aren't demonic powers, then you're, you're coming up against the, the presence of Almighty God. When you, when you see my ministry, when you hear my teaching, it's God who is speaking. And that's why response is required. When I lived in Texas, um, I'm not from Texas. I'm from the Northeast, right? So South Texas, they have rattlesnakes, which when you're from the Northeast, that's what you, you see Western movies where there's rattlesnakes. But in South Texas, like, they exist. And so when you go out in a park, like, you have to watch for rattlesnakes. And I remember one time I was running in a park, and I'm running along, and I'm in that kind of zoned out, you know, half-numbed state that I, people like me get in when we run. And I'm not really paying attention. I see something kind of straddle across the path in front of me, and I, I'm not really paying attention. And I get about two feet from it, and I realize it's, a, it's like an eight-foot rattlesnake stretched all the way across. And so I immediately stop, and my heart's like, because I was like, I almost just ran across a rattlesnake. And rattlesnakes kill people. Like, if they bite you, that venom's going to kill you unless you get anti-venom within a very short time. So I was like, oh my word, I almost just ran across a rattlesnake. So I did this like huge roundabout, and then kept going on my way. If it had been a stick lying across the path, I just would have ran over it. Doesn't require response, not a big deal. But because of the nature of what that thing was as a rattlesnake, I had to respond. That's what Jesus is saying. Because of the nature of who he is, if he's just like a cool teacher who's saying interesting things, like take it for what it's worth. But this is the finger of God. This is, the, this is God's presence. And so it demands a response from those who hear him. So why is a response required? Because of who Jesus is. Second question, okay, well, if a response is required because in Jesus we're coming to the presence of God himself, then what kind of response is required? How do we respond? We're going to look at three responses. The first two are, are wrong responses, and then the third response is the correct response. So the first wrong response is verses 24 to 26. Go ahead and turn there in your Bible. Now, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. 
Jesus is picturing here someone who's experienced a great work of God, specifically exorcism, someone who had been afflicted by an evil spirit, and Jesus had cast that spirit out, but also applies to anyone who had experienced the presence and the power of Jesus. But there's a problem here. Look at verse 25. What's the state of this person after they encounter the power of Jesus? Jesus compares this person to a house that's been swept and put in order. What's the problem with that? What can you do in a house that's swept and put in order? Anything. (laughs) You can host a party. You can have a, you know, cozy night by yourself with your loved one. You can just leave it empty. It's not prepared for anything. It's not committed to anything. It's open to everything. So what Jesus is showing here is, here's someone who's experienced the presence and the power of Jesus. Yay, praise God. But they're like, but I'm not ready to commit myself yet. I'm going to stay on the sidelines. I'm going to remain neutral. And the problem with that is that neutrality is kind of a fiction when it comes to following Jesus. In itself, neutrality is, in fact, a rejection. What Jesus is saying is that this kind of neutrality, this kind of unwillingness to commit, to decide I'm, I'm, I'm all with Jesus, actually leads to a far worse spiritual outcome in the end. Think about it like this, okay? Um, imagine you're diagnosed with a really aggressive form of cancer, and some of you have, actually. So this is not a hypothetical. And, and, and probably all of us know someone who has been diagnosed with an aggressive form of cancer. And so you, you go to the doctor, the oncologist, and he lays out treatment plans. He's like, Here's all your possible treatment plans. Here's the pros and cons of each of them. I would recommend this one. So you listen to it, okay. Imagine if you respond, okay, I think I'm just going to sit on the sideline. I, I think I'm just going to wait. I'm not going to make a choice. I'm not going to commit to one choice or the other. I just, I'm just going to wait this out and remain neutral. Well, that would be the worst choice you could pick because that's choosing to not treat it, and it's an aggressive form of cancer. And so if you decide to stay neutral, keep your options open when it comes to Jesus, that's actually the worst choice you can make. I really do think that a robust atheism is more spiritually helpful than kind of a lazy agnosticism. Because when you're like a, a militant atheist, you're at least fighting God. Even though you may not think God exists, you're at least opposed to him, and there's always a chance that God may open your eyes to the one that you're fighting. Whereas when we're just kind of lazy agnostic, we're just asleep. That's the worst place to be spiritually. So the first wrong response is a neutral response. The problem with neutrality is that it's, there is no neutrality. The second wrong response is just flat-out rejection. Look at verses 29 to 32. Now when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Here, Jesus is responding to those in in verses 15 and 16 who are saying, you know, Jesus, I recognize he's doing crazy stuff, but it's by demonic powers. The people who've rejected Jesus, who's like, I want nothing to do with Jesus. I'm just trying to find ways to to, to reject him. That's who Jesus is responding to here. And what's the problem with flat out rejecting Jesus? Well, the problem is that one day we'll all stand before God and we'll give account for that, the final judgment. 
But what's interesting is that the focus in this text is not on God judging those who reject Jesus, but it's actually on others who offer condemnation and judgment on those who reject Jesus. And there's two people mentioned who will, who will condemn those who are rejecting Christ outright. The first is this Queen of Sheba. Now, um, if it's been a while since you've read First and Second Chronicles, in Second Chronicles, Solomon has just become king. Um, he's considered the wisest man in the world. He has great wisdom. And, and so the Queen of Sheba is just a, a foreign pagan queen who's heard about the wisdom of Solomon and wants to come and learn from him. And so she seeks out Solomon to hear the wisdom of Solomon, which was the wisdom of God. And so what Jesus is saying, look, the queen of Sheba came to hear the true wisdom from Solomon, but someone far greater than Solomon is here, and you guys are not willing to listen to him. And so the queen of Sheba, this, you know, pagan, non-Jewish, foreign queen, is going to rise up and condemn you because she was willing to do what you're not. But the second example is really shocking because he talks about the city of Nineveh, the men of Nineveh will rise up and condemn you. Nineveh was the largest city in the Syrian Empire. The Syrian Empire was notoriously cruel and awful in many ways. When they would conquer nations, they would take the king and his family, like his wife and his kids, they would roll them up in carpets, and then they would run their cavalry over it until they returned to a bloody pulp. They would do that to terrify the people. Don't mess with us. This is what we're going to do to you. They were a cruel and vicious people, and they were the ones who end up defeating the northern kingdom and taking them into exile and, and basically eradicating the northern kingdom of Israel. They were the, these are like the bad guys, okay? But if you remember the story of Jonah, God calls Jonah the prophet to go and preach to the city of Nineveh. And what happens, this incredibly evil city, I mean, evil is not, a, a, you know, hyperbole. This is an evil city. They actually repent. And they say, you're right, we've done wrong. And they cry out to God for mercy. <laughs> he's talking to, to Jews who think that they're really religious. And he's saying, look, the Ninevites are going to rise up and condemn you pious Jews on the last day. The evil Ninevites. Because even though they did all these bad things, they actually responded to the call of God, and you are rejecting it. Okay, those are the two bad responses. Neutrality, outright rejection. So what is the right way to respond to the kingdom of God, to the preaching of Jesus? And we actually see that in the examples of the Queen of Sheba and the men of Nineveh. The Queen of Sheba listens to Solomon, and the men of Nineveh repent. It's hearing and repenting. It's, 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 it's being willing to really listen, not with like, okay, let's see what you have to say. I don't really believe it, or, or in, in kind of like cynical criticism. But it's like, I, I want to know the truth. I want to know it's true. I want to hear from God. Speak to me. It's hearing in that kind of a way, and it's repenting. Now, repentance is one of those Bible words that's used a lot, and it's not always well-defined, and it just has a really negative connotation if we're frank. When you think of repentance, you think of like the crazy guy on a college campus who probably has a mental health disorder, who's like, turn or burn! Or we think of like, you know, an old Methodist, uh, you know, country preacher talking firestone, fire and brimstone. That's it, fire and brimstone. That's what we think of repentance. Here's the thing, though, is <laughs> repentance is a massively important biblical concept. Absolutely important. And if not just for this reason, that this is the only correct way to respond to Christ, is repentance. So we have to ask, okay, what does repentance mean? 
Now, in the New Testament, the repentance has a whole life significance. It involves our mind, our emotions, our wills, our actions. It's all of us. But most fundamentally, repentance talks about changing our minds. That's literally what it means, to change how we think. Now, to use a really trivial example of this, right, when I was younger, I thought chocolate was the best ice cream. Then I changed my mind, and now I think it's peanut butter and chocolate. So I have repented. That's a really trivial example of I've changed my mind. That's not what the Bible's talking about when it means changing our mind. The Bible's talking about when it says repentance is changing our mind, something closer to the story of John Newton. John Newton was an English pastor in the 18th century. He wrote the famous hymn, Amazing Grace, beautiful, soaring, both music and words. But what's interesting about John Newton is that before he became a Christian, he was a slave trader. He captained multiple ships which would go to the coast of Africa, abduct and capture Africans, and then sell them into some of those heinous living conditions you can imagine. And he got rich. He got rich over exploiting people made in God's image. And then he became a Christian. And part of that was changing his mind. Now, here's the thing. When I change my mind about my ice cream flavor, it's not like, it's like ice cream flavor. Like, okay, I just think differently. When John Newton changed his mind, it wasn't like, well, you know, my preference when I was younger was to enslave people and make money off that, and now my preference is not to do that. It's not what he was saying. What he was saying is, what I thought before was wrong, objectively wrong. There's grief. That's why often with repentance, grief comes with it because we're saying what I thought before, what I did before, it wasn't just like different, it was wrong. And I'm sad. I mean, can you imagine John Newton? Like, I enslaved people. There's grief over that. I thought people were that. That's how all of us, that's what repentance means is I was wrong. The way I thought was wrong. And I see that now. I'm changing it now. And so, True repentance will always involve emotion, but it's not first an emotion. It's changing how we think. And we have to be careful about overly emotional understandings of repentance because it can be hard in that moment then to tell, okay, is this just reacting to the moment or are you really changing how you think? But the only correct, the only way we can respond to Jesus is with hearing and repentance. Because when Christ came to earth, he confronted people. When Christ comes to us now, he confronts us. What he says is, all is not well. All is not well within us. Not all of us have John Newton's story, right? Like probably none, well, I hope, you know, historically it's not possible for us to be slave traders. But our hearts are still greedy and proud and self-absorbed and incredibly self-deceptive. We have the same heart as John Newton. We just aren't, don't have a history of slave trade. So Christ comes to us now and he confronts us. He says, all is not well. In your life, in your heart, how will you respond? The only way to respond is repentance. I was wrong. I think differently. And then faith, I believe Jesus can make me right. So we see the necessity of responding. We see the various ways that we can respond. But lastly, we're going to look at a missed opportunity to respond. Look at verses 37 to 52. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. And so he went in and reclined at table. And the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. 
And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, you, clean, you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within you, and behold, everything is clean for you. Woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These things you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. And one of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one finger. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some they will kill and persecute so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. This is one of those texts that you read it, and it just sticks with you. Because the words are so incisive and Jesus is just reaming them out and you read it and it's, it's hard to read and, and, and you just don't forget it. Everyone remembers the woe passage in Luke 11. And here Jesus is speaking to religious leaders. And so there's a special sobering effect for people like me, pastors, or deacons, people who serve in religious leadership, or if you aspire to be a pastor, there's just a sobering there's a sobering sense as we read this. But also, you know, this, these are things that apply broadly to human tendencies in all of us. And Jesus is so incisive in this rebuke. And I want to look at a couple of the woes. We don't have time to do all of them, obviously, but we'll look at two of them. So, verse, so first, in verse 39, this is, this is how Jesus begins his rebuke of the Pharisees. He says, Now you Pharisees, you cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. It's like you make the outside look great and you don't care about the rottenness within you. I think this is really interesting because we as a culture in the West, we are obsessed with our appearance. I am obsessed with my appearance, comparatively speaking to previous generations. And so I think if Jesus was going to speak to our generation or our culture, he'd say this. He's like, you know, you shower and bathe every day religiously. You use expensive conditioner and shampoo on your hair. You go to boutique salons and, and barbers to get the perfect haircut. You have so many clothes, you need a closet to hold them all. You pay expensive money on gym memberships and healthy foods to take care of your body. You do all these things for your outside appearance, and you're dead inside. <laughs> I mean, come on. I'm like, whoa, holy smokes. How often do we spend so much time? Like, I run a lot. I do all these things to stay healthy physically, and yet I'm not concerned about the eternal state of my soul. speaks to us. Or look at verse 42. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe the mint and rue and every herb and you neglect justice and the love of God. It says you major in the minors. You take less important spiritual practices 
and you do them religiously and then you ignore the suffering of your neighbor. You ought to do both. Whereas Jesus um, says it in Matthew, he says you, you strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. Like no one wants to drink, no one wants to drink something with like a bug in it, right? So you, you pull the bug out, but you're actually swallowing a camel. So you're, you're majoring on the minors. I mean, you know, we all do this. For me, it's like, I, if I'm honest, oftentimes I, I more easily get upset, like legitimately upset, over minor theological differences between me and someone else than over the, the suffering that's happening in our own city. Like, it, it hits me emotionally quicker. We minor, we major in the minors. What Jesus' incisive rebukes here is he's revealing hypocrisy in the religious leaders and in all of us. But I have to ask, why is Jesus, okay, so man, these are just incisive critiques, incisive rebukes, but why is Jesus doing this? Like, is he just being mean? <laughs> um, is he canceling the Pharisees? Um, if you haven't heard the word canceling, it's kind of a recent phenomenon, but it's basically an attempt to hold people to account. So it's like a all-of-life boycott on someone who's done something bad, potentially. But the problem with cancel culture and the problem with canceling is that it doesn't leave place for forgiveness, redemption. It says, look, you've done something bad. It's over. You're done. Out. Jesus is not canceling the Pharisees. And if there's anyone who deserves to be canceled, right, it's probably the Pharisees. But Jesus doesn't cancel them. He calls them to repent. Get this. Jesus loved the Pharisees. He died for the Pharisees just as much as he died for Mary and Martha and the disciples. He's speaking out of grace. And just like a surgeon has to cut you open first before he can save you, Jesus has got to wound them before he can free them from their self-justifications and their blindness and their sin. He's speaking out of grace. He's calling them to repent, to change their minds, to experience grief over their past sins, and to experience forgiveness and healing that only Jesus can provide. And the great tragedy here is that the Pharisees miss this opportunity. Look at how it ends in verse 53 and 54. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees they began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. I think this is kind of a dividing moment for the Pharisees in, in, the, in at least the Gospel of Luke. There's been opposition. They're like not sure what to do with Jesus. They're a little bit annoyed at him, but it's like here they're like, this is what turns them towards the day when they will lie and bribe and murder Jesus. And what's interesting is that eventually their actions will prove Jesus was right about their hearts, even though they rejected him their own actions will prove everything he just said about them. Because of who Jesus is, because he is God's presence come to us, we must, we must respond to him. And here's the thing, it's in grace that Jesus confronts us. It's in grace because he knows the sins we run after and the deception that we're in is leading to death. And he offers life and forgiveness and healing. He knows all is not well with us. He offers this to those who repent and who change their mind. So how will you respond to Jesus when he comes to you? Let's pray. 
Jesus, you are, you are the, the one who confronts us and cuts us and wounds us so that we might be free, so that we might know life, so that we might have relationship and fellowship with you. And there is nothing better. There is nothing better on this earth, nothing better in this life that can be offered than to walk with you and to be known by you. I pray that there's any here this morning that has not responded to you in repentance and faith, Lord, may you open their eyes. And for those of us who have, may we continue to walk in renewed repentance, renewed brokenness, renewed dependence on the work and grace of Jesus Christ in our lives. Pray this in your holy name. Amen.